Okay, wonderful. Well, bless you all. Lovely to see you all this morning. Um, and, you know, it's great to worship God together, isn't it? It just almost feels like God is, is wanting just to draw us close to Him as we worship Him together. And, um, and in some ways, as we continue here, just hearing God's Word, um, I've been stirred as I've been preparing for this, of just how much God is for us, how much He loves us, how much He so wants us to become all the people um, that we can be. And, um, and as uh, has been alluded to already, we've been, uh, we're looking at a, a series at the moment on our values. We've recently um, looked, re-looked at our values, and we um, have labeled them under these three E's. Anyone remember what they are? Empowered, engaged, and extravagant. Yeah, three, for some reason, three is easier to remember, isn't it, than six? So, um, empowered, engaged, and extravagant. So at the moment, we're looking at empowered, what it means to be empowered. So um, about last Sunday, we looked at uh, the up uh, aspects of being empowered, and today we're looking at the in. And um, yeah, so the first question I wanted to ask you is this. When, as a Christian, do you feel most empowered? When do you feel most Empower. Just think about that for a moment. Is it a particular part of the day, would you say, for you? Is it a particular place? Is it with um, particular people that you might feel most empowered? Maybe, maybe you're a morning person. Maybe it's first thing in the morning. You know, it's like, right, Lord, come on, take me on with the day. Or maybe it's um, just before lunch. You know, you've got a project to get done, and, and you, you, you're going to get it done before you uh, go out and have lunch somewhere and grab yourself a baguette somewhere. Maybe it's in the evenings. Maybe that's when you feel most empowered. You know, when you can just unwind a little, have a, maybe a, a little glass of wine or something. You feel most empowered in the evening to be all that God has called you to be. But, you know, there are def- lots of um, different ways that we can feel empowered. It might be when you read something, if you're a big reader, reading tweets or blogs or books. Maybe it's when you've just been for a run. But as Christians, being spiritually empowered comes from God. God is the one who empowers us. You know, as, as Steve spoke last week, you know, it's drawing from God. It's a total reliance on Him. It's connecting with God, connecting with Jesus when we look up. Um, you know, it's really important to look up. It's really important to look to God in our daily lives. But you know, you can't keep on looking up. Because if you keep on looking up, what's going to happen? You're going to bump into something. I was just going to illustrate that with Steve, but he's got his legs sticking out here, and I probably uh, might hurt myself. But you're going to bump into things. So it's really important not just to look up, but also to look around you. To look around you at the people that you are on mission with, the church. Now, just take a moment. Just have a little look around you. This is your moment to have permission to look behind you, to look to the left, to look to the right. Look at people around you who you are 
on mission with. There might be people that are very familiar that you recognize. I see some very warm smiles going across the room. I see some, um, you might be looking, you might see somebody you've never seen before, you might not recognize, but they're here today. They're part of this family today, this church, this body which represents God's church. You know, you might want to go up to them at the end and sort of say, hello, my name's Rob. Well, you don't say that, but... (laughs) You know, you might introduce yourself and say, well, it's really lovely to see you here today, that God has called you to be in this building for this particular day, to be part of us. And it's really lovely to meet you. That's all you need to say. And what a difference that might make. So today, we're looking at what it means to be an empowered church, that we're looking at us as a church. Now, I suggest that there are 300, 700, and six, did I say 300? I suggest there are 3,700, and it ruins the joke when you get the number wrong. I suggest there are 3,764 ways that we can be empowered as a church. (laughs) But today, we're only going to look at four of them. See, that doesn't work when you get the joke wrong, does it? So we're going to look at four ways. I like numbers. I like numbers. In fact, um, I don't work with numbers anymore. But I did a little calculation this morning. And this is really interesting. I thought it was interesting anyway. And my wife doesn't even know this. And she's looking down thinking, oh, my word, I'm so embarrassed. But if you add together the ages of all the people in my family today it comes to 100. Isn't that amazing? I think that's really interesting. (laughs) Anyway, there we go. So, um, back to the uh, point. So, my first point uh, that I'm talking about is the church, how we're being empowered. The first one is how we're empowered as a church is that we should be a church where God's love is evident, where God's love is evident amongst us. You know, we've been hearing in the worship this morning about God's love. Now, I don't know about you, but I think love is a funny thing. You know, I've always found love to be actually a bit weird. You know, you go through your your teenage years stressing about it. You know, and then you get to a point where, you know, you might get married, and then you think that you love your wife. But then, you know, you really get to know them, and (laughs) just bear with me, this is going somewhere, and you really get to know them, and actually, it isn't all meals out and cinema trips. I mean, we used to, I don't know if you, you can still get it, actually, I see it, I I look at it in the distance, but you can buy these cinema uh, things, you can buy, for £10, I don't know how much it is now, but for £10, you can go to as many films as you like in the month. We used to go loads to the cinema. We did loads of cinema trips. So, and then you sort of get to know your wife, and you realize that they actually aren't perfect like you are. (laughs) And then you wonder, you know, what is this love thing anyway? It doesn't seem to be quite how I pictured it as a a teenager. And And then there's the church. Well, church is made up of lots of very different people. And they're all very different to me. 
You know, who are all these people? You know, why isn't there anybody that's exactly like me? You're all very quiet at that bit. <laughs> Don't worry, I'm not going to say anything about you all. You're lovely, wonderful people. And then, and then you may have children. Well, gosh, you certainly learn a different dimension of love when you have children. I mean, you love them. But, you know, there are real times when you do or say things that really, you know, don't demonstrate love to your children. And then there's our parents. Well, we know our parents love us. You know, that's what you grow up thinking. But the thing is with parents is their love is imperfect like ours. They might not know it, or at least they might not admit it. And you don't really, or don't certainly know it until you reach your 30s, and then you begin to realize that you have all these issues because your parents aren't perfect in loving you after all. So, I don't know about you, but I've come to the conclusion that love is a, is a funny thing. Love can be very confusing, very complicated, and in fact, very messy. So why on earth would we want a church where God's love is evident? Ah, getting on to my point. Because in this great messiness and, and complicated and confusingness, I don't know if that's a word, of earthly love is a biblical and wonderful and exciting godly love. A love that is real, available, accessible, and perfect in every way for everyone who takes a step to receive it. God's love is the most incredible, I'm trying to think of all the adjectives I can think of, amazing, mind-blowingly phenomenal thing, that's a good one, that you could ever imagine. God's love never changes. God's love is not complicated. It's pure love of acceptance of each and every one of us. God's love's not confusing. God's love remains true. It remains steadfast, dependable, trustworthy, completely secure. It's a great one. It's so secure, God's love. He's not insecure when he loves us. You know, we could treat you, we could say anything, and he still securely loves us. God's love is unconditional. Unconditional. I would love to think I could love my children unconditionally. You know, when, when we first got married, Abby and I had a conversation about uh, unconditional love. And I, I was quite skeptical. I mean, actually, we differ, it's one of those things. In marriages, you have quite a few differences of opinions and certain things. And this is one of those. She said to me, of course, you know, we can love our children unconditionally. And I was very hesitant. And I was like, no, of course we can't. We're imperfect. There's no that way that we can do that. And over the years... I've learned, okay, yes, my love is unconditional. But I've grown in being able to show my children love unconditionally because I've recognized that that is the goal. That my goal is to think like God towards my children. is to be like God towards my children. And often the when I don't love my children unconditional, it's because of things in my own heart and things in my own life that doesn't allow me to do that. But my aim is to do that. 
So my wife won that one over me. Well, I thought that might get a bit of a laugh. But my wife is much cleverer than I am. 1 Corinthians 13 gives a flavor, if you like, of God's love. 1 Corinthians 13, it was, we know it, we hear it a lot. If you go to weddings, it's one of the most popular um, readings at a wedding. And 1 Corinthians 13 gives a flavor of God's love. But in essence, we are told in 1 John that God actually is love. So if we are to be a church that represents God and are empowered by him, we too are to be a group of people where God's love is clearly evident. Now, Tim Keller, who I often reference when I preach, he puts this uh, love of God that, that God is by very nature very succinctly in this short video. And he does it through uh, the passage in Isaiah 49. And that comes up very, uh, at the very beginning. If you want to look at it, it's Isaiah 49, um, verse 14, uh, around verse 14. Where um, Isaiah is, uh, or the expression is, in this instance, of the deep feeling of complaint and objection of the people of God amidst many uh, calamities, afflictions, and trials, and, and things that are going wrong, and, and I hope this video is going to work. But what happens is, is that then um, verse 14, you know, talks about how God still loves his people, even though they feel like God has left them, that God has forsaken them, and that God has forgotten them. God's love is immeasurably great. So let's just quickly watch this short video. In verse 14, we see Israel saying skeptically, but I don't feel loved. But Zion says, the Lord has forsaken me, the Lord has forgotten me. He says, I feel forsaken. You've forsaken, forgotten me. I'm surrounded by needs now. I've got needs now. I'm surrounded by tragedy now. So how does God deal with this? How does God deal with this despondency, this sense of forsakenness? And in verse 15, can a mother forget the baby at her breast? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. Mother's love for a child is not just physical and emotional, it's unconditional. How indestructible is a mother's love for her child? And now God says, I want you to compare that to me. God is saying, do you know what he's saying here? He says, you see mother love, it's nothing compared to my love for you. You see her physical love? You see her very being moves her towards you? Do you know that everything about my glory, everything about my faithfulness, everything about my very nature drives me powerfully towards you? I'm a God of love. I'm a God of faithfulness. You give me nothing. It's nothing but take, 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 take. You're completely selfish. You add no value to my life at all, and I absolutely love you unconditionally. But guess what? God's not done. Because ultimately, this is still talk. And if you only have words and not action, in the end, you don't believe the person loves you. Because in the end, what really convinces you that somebody loves you is not talk, but action. In verse 16, the metaphor changes and says, See, I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. Now, at first, that looks like just another lovely metaphor about his devotion. And now here's the reason why. It was sometimes true in ancient times that the name of a master might be tattooed on the servant, but never, ever, ever, ever 
is the name of the servant tattooed on the master. That would mean a master who's devoted to the servant. And of course, well, that's what we have here. Isn't that beautiful? Another metaphor of God's love. But no, it's not a beautiful metaphor. It's a horrible metaphor. You know why? It doesn't say tattoo. It says, I have engraved you in the palm of my hands. And that word engraved is a very specific Hebrew word that means engrave with a hammer and a chisel or a spell. Conjure up the image of someone out of love Letting people take a hammer and drive a spike right into the palm of their hands. Isn't that horrible? Yes, it is horrible. Doesn't that make you cringe? Yes, it makes you cringe. Isn't that crazy? No, it's not crazy. Centuries later, there was a man named Thomas. Jesus Christ appears to him, and he says, Look at the palms of my hands. See my love for you. Look at what's on the palms of my hands. See, that's your final argument, because it's more than an argument. It's a this is not just talk, this is action. You know why it's a final argument? What if you say, oh, I can't believe God loves me because look at all the awful stuff in me, the things that I have done. You know what Jesus says? You're afraid that God's going to forsake you? On the cross, I was forsaken. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I was forsaken. I got the forsakenness that you sense that you deserve so that now, no matter what you do, God will never forsake you. He loves you as unconditionally as a mother loves her nursing infant. Well, you say, well, what about all these other things out here? But don't you see, I've done the thing that you really need. My love is unconditional. It is indestructible. And I absolutely love you unconditionally forever and ever. Amen. So as you can see from Tim Keller's wonderful um, exposition of Isaiah 49, that just that God loves us. And we, God is calling us to be a church where that love is evident amongst us. Number two, a church where people demonstrate one-anothering. Now, I don't know if you've heard this phrase before, the phrase one-anothering. It's a, um, in fact, there are 59 one-anothers of the New Testament. There's lots of references to how we can care for one another, encourage one another as God's church. And um, as we look at this value of empowerment, then I think actually it's important to look at these references, these 59 references of what it means to one another. And, and I've got the list of them here. Now, I'm not going to read through them. 59 of them would take a little bit of time. But I'm just going to pick out some that I find, I think, uh, for, for this morning, that I feel God wants to encourage us in. The first one on the list, be at peace with each other, Mark 9.50. Be at peace with each other. You know, I think some of these one anotherings are hallmarks of the church. As we demonstrate them to each other, as we live them out, people will see us as different. There are five references of love one another. Um, from John 13 and 15. Um, love one another comes up a lot. It's in Romans. There's another six or seven of them in 1 John, 2 John, the letters. Um, serve one another. It says in Galatians, serve one another. Bear one another in love. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgive one another. Speak to one another 
with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. <laughs> I don't the last time you might have sung to somebody in a spiritual song. Submit to one another. And that's the first half. The second sheet, bear with each other. Forgive one another. Encourage each other. A couple of references in 1 Thessalonians. Encourage one another daily. Encourage again, Hebrews. Pray for one another. Offer hospitality to one another. Clothe yourself with humility toward one another. You know, even in your life groups, it's sometimes worth just getting those 59 verses and, uh, yeah, verses and look at how we might one another. The church is empowered as it loves one another. The church is empowered as it loves God, as we love each other, and as we love those who have never connected with God. And we'll be looking at that more next week when we look at the out. The vehicle in which the world will see Jesus. The vehicle in which the world will see that Jesus is real is through you and me and our love for each other and the way we look out and we care for each other. The reality of Jesus, that God has chosen, that his vehicle of communicating the gospel is through you and me. It's through our love for each other. You know, um, isn't it? Jesus says, um, this is how people will know that you are my disciples in your love for one another. A church where everyone is growing in their understanding of their identity in Christ. So a church where God's love is evident, a church where there's one anothering, but also where everyone is growing in their understanding of their identity in Christ. Number three, the who I am question. Who am I? How secure would you say your identity is in Jesus, in Christ? You know, as a church, we're empowered as we grow individually in understanding that concept. But we also grow, mature as a church, as we grow in the foundational teachings of our identity. Of our identity as Christians that's rooted and established in Christ. You know, that we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. You know, that is the truth that we read in Ephesians. That we're seated with him. That there's a spiritual dimension that we have a place already in heaven. You know, the truth that we are free from the power of sin. You know, we can trip up, that the enemy trips us up, but we are free ultimately from the power of sin. And that we are free from the lies of the enemy. Because the enemy, the devil, wants us to believe bad things about ourselves. That's true. But (laughs) the lies are not true. You know, as a whole church, we have um, just been through the living free. And the living free is a uh, a whole series of talks and uh, discussions and, and, and times of prayer where we look at what it means to walk in freedom of who we are in Christ. And the first R of this particular 
um, of the five R's, which, which they talked about in the Living Free, is recognizing. Recognizing is the first step to walking in freedom, walking in your identity and who you are in Christ. Recognizing who you are. What God has called you to become. And recognizing who God's called you to be. And then going for it. Because it's not just enough to recognize who you are. We actually have to take steps of faith and trust in the power of Jesus. Trust in that Jesus will lead us and guide us into what we feel he's called us to be. And in that process, it involves the church. It involves the people around you to seek wisdom, to seek advice, to seek counsel, and then go for it. And go for all that you can be in God. You know, we have an enemy who wants to stop us. But my encouragement to each and every one of us, don't let him. (laughs) You know, the wonderful thing about the living free, it looks at truth. It looks at the power of knowing truth. That Jesus, being the truth, and knowing him, empowers you to be all that you can be. You know, and part of the process of living free is praying with others in the church, in the body of Christ, to see greater freedom in your life, in my life. You know, I've had times that I've prayed with people and I've seen great breakthrough in my own personal journey when I've stood with other people. You know, Jesus, um, <laughs> Jesus loves us. You know, and I think many of us probably think we have lots of quirky things that are very different from lots of other people. I know I do, and I'm just presuming that you're all in the similar box to me. You know, there are things about me I think, oh, man, if people knew that, they'd probably think I'm a bit crazy. You know, um, yesterday we had some friends over, and one of the things I, I said to them, I said, you know, I like listening to Magic FM. (laughs) Uh, Maybe some other people do here too. Maybe you'd think, actually, it's not that crazy. But, you know, there was part of me that was going to turn off the radio because I didn't want them to know that I actually liked listening to Magic FM. I see a few smiles, but you must have your own thing which you change the way you behave because you think people might not like you if they knew about it. You know... Jesus likes you just as you are. He loves you the way that he made you. He loves you for your quirkiness. He loves you for everything about you. He loves you unconditionally, completely, wholeheartedly, without an agenda. You know, and our identity in Christ reassures us of that and reaffirms that in our hearts. You know, we are to be a church that's empowered by knowing that we are acceptable to God, no matter, no matter what we are, what we look like, and what radio stations we like listening to. And finally, number four, God calls us to be a church that is reliant on the Holy Spirit. 
that it was reliant on the Holy Spirit to direct and lead us and teach us and guide us. And the great thing is with the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit can speak to every single one of us all at the same time. Isn't that amazing? (laughs) The Holy Spirit has an ability to mount our hearts to the truth of the gospel. And the Holy Spirit not only reveals the gospel, but the Holy Spirit equips us to be the gospel. The Holy Spirit equips us to be the gospel to those around us. Holy Spirit helps us to testify to the truth and live by the truth of the gospel. Now, I want to quickly look at uh, John's gospel um, again. I really feel John's gospel is a great place to really sort of um, read and get into the, the love that God has for us, but just more about just who um, Jesus calls us to be as a church. And so in John 7, 39, Jesus is speaking uh, to a group of people. I think this is the Jews the group. He's, I think it's the last day of the greatest feast. Um, and he stands up and, he's, and he tells the crowd, and he, I think he actually tells the crowd in a loud voice, when there's thirsty people spiritually thirsty people that believe in him, something will happen. And what he says is this. He says, streams of living water will flow from within them. And I love the way that John writes this. So we're looking at John 39 onwards. And John John says this, Uh, in 38. uh, uh, So Jesus says, whoever believes in me, streams of living water will flow from within him. And then in 39, John says, by this, he meant the Spirit. I love the way John does that, because he he sort of explains to us what's going on in the passage, what Jesus is referring to. John says, by this, what Jesus is talking about is his Holy Spirit, that his Holy Spirit would be like streams of living water that will flow from within. You know, there's something about the Holy Spirit that grips us, that speaks to us about Jesus and who Jesus is, that equips us, that enables us to go, yes, this is true. It's not just written on a page in a book. This is actually true. By this, he meant the Spirit whom those who believe in him were later to receive. We've received the Holy Spirit. John was referring to a later date, and we have received that Holy Spirit. And he then goes on to say, up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Hallelujah, Jesus has been glorified. And we have received the Holy Spirit. And then later in John, John 20, uh, 22, after Jesus' resurrection, uh, John uh, explains this. He said, Jesus breathed on them <laughs> and said to them, I mean, I'm not quite sure what John's referring to, because, you know, did, did Jesus go up to them and go, <sighs> but that's what the word says. 
Jesus breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. That Holy Spirit is available to each and every one of us as Christians. You know, I love reading the book of Acts. I love going back into the book of Acts. Because we hear time and time again of the early church receiving and being baptized in the Holy Spirit. Being empowered by the Holy Spirit. And the greatest hallmarks, I think, of a healthy church is the presence of the Holy Spirit. You know, the truth of God and and his characteristics, you know, they're wonderful things. But if they stay as facts, as they stay as words written on a a post-it note that you keep somewhere, or in a book that that we call the Bible, that gathers dust or that sits on a bookcase, then they're nothing. The fact that God is God has absolutely no impact or significance if it wasn't for the Holy Spirit. If it wasn't for the Holy Spirit bringing God's words to life. It's like the, the Holy Spirit gives us access to the truth. You know, the truth exists. The truth is, is there. It's written in God's words. It's written in the Bible. But it's like the Holy Spirit makes it come alive. It gives us that hunger for it. It gives us that thirst that Jesus talks about in John 7. We have a thirst for the Word of God. And it's the Holy Spirit that stirs that up in us. It's, it gives us that connection, that live interaction with the truth in like a a new and life-changing way, that the truth and the word of God just comes alive. It's like the truth has sudden meaning. You know, for example, we can read about the power of God. And without the Holy Spirit, it's just an, an abstract concept. You know, yep, the power of God, great. With the Spirit, the truth of this begins to shine. It begins to change us. And what happens is your heart develops courage. That actually the power of God, actually there is power in God. Actually, and he's put that power in me. Actually, I can make a difference for God's purposes and God's kingdom. You know, you begin to experience for yourself the actual power of God within you. You begin to step out. You begin to do things that you really didn't think you could do because the Holy Holy Spirit empowers you to live in the actual power of God. Just an example. You know, speaking to others about your faith. You know, I think in this country we need the Holy Spirit because I think we're, speaking for myself, very timid in going forward and speaking to other people about our faith. Even talking to our neighbor about the weather can be a real challenge. You know, and I think the Holy Spirit can stir us and motivate us to actually knock on someone's door, to invite somebody for coffee, to do something where we're engaging with the people around us. You know, it no longer becomes something that you feel you have to do because your pastor is telling you to do it. 
but something you just feel motivated, that there's a gospel, that there's a love that God has. I want these people to know the love of God. You know, I find it so hard when my neighbor says to me, oh, you know, my back's really hurting. I've been, I've been, you know, I've not been able to go out. I've not been able to go to work. You know, my back's really hurting. I know that the Lord wants me to pray for them. But do I, is the question. And nine times out of ten, it's no. But I know that praying for them, God, and it's just allowing the Holy Spirit to prompt us and to give us the courage that actually there's nothing to fear praying for somebody. And in fact, they appreciate it. I've done it before, and the appreciation is phenomenal when I've prayed for somebody. The wonderful thing about the Holy Spirit is there's these wonderful gifts as well. There's lovely gifts that the Holy Spirit at our disposal that God lavishly distributes amongst the church. And these gifts um, can are good for edifying each one of us. We can prophesy over each other. We can uh, encourage each other. We can speak words of encouragement. There's lots of spiritual gifts that we can use within the church. And we are a community that believes in operating in these spiritual gifts and being that we are empowered as we use these gifts amongst the church uh, with each other. But I believe that God also encourages to use those gifts in the community around us, as we talked about praying for healing for people. What gifts do you have? What gifts do you feel God has given you? Do you know what gifts you have? Are they gifts that you've never used? That you've used them once and... I'm not sure how to end that sentence. Use them again. (laughs) God, in his Holy Spirit, has given us gifts to use within the church. And then we also have the fruits of the Spirit. Peace, patience, kindness, gentleness... Goodness, joy, joy? There are the seven, seven? Nine. Fruits of the Spirit that God wants us to use, to know, to enjoy, and to um, be a church that is outworking the fruits of the Spirit. And finally, before I um, just recap the, the four points that I've, I've, I've shared with you today, the ultimate demonstration of an empowered church, I think, is a church that experiences revival. And I think revival is something we talk about from time to time. It's something that we pray about from time to time. But it's something which, um, you know, I think that I feel encouraged to encourage us all to think about praying for again and thinking about um, asking God for revival. And you know, there's a lot going on in this country at the moment. A lot of, you know, really tough decisions that are being made. And, you know, and I don't know about you, but I feel like we've been in austerity measures for like 100 years. And, you know, and almost to the increase as well of um, terrorism as well. It's just, you just feel like, God, what is going on? And... Um, I read something um, this week um, that J. John wrote about preparing for revival. 
And I'll just be brief on this, because this is, a, I think, a preach in its own. But I think that J. John uh, says this. There are three things that we could um, sort of be encouraged to think about in terms of praying for revival. The first is prayer. Um, our prayers, and particularly that our prayers are directed, that we glorify God, that we give him thanks, um, and we glorify God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that just that he is glorified and no one else, that we lift up the name of Jesus and no one else, that his name is lifted high and no one else, that in our prayers we glorify him. First thing, purity. Second thing, that there is a fresh and new desire to live a holy life in the church. And the third P is persistence. A continued pressing into God's word and pressing into God's Holy Spirit. That we're persistent in calling on God to send revival to our nation. To ask him to pour out his spirit. To draw people to himself. Prayer purity, and persistence. And just on the back of that, um, there is a prayer meeting uh, taking place at the Merland Rise Church up um, in uh, Tadworth Way, I think. Um, and what they are doing is a team of Koreans that have come to the UK especially to pray for this nation. It's like historically we've had people going to other nations to see people come to faith. Hudson Taylor, Jim Elliot, going to take the gospel, the good news of Jesus to other nations. And here we have a Korean prayer team coming to this nation to pray for the UK. And um, they're going to just pray for an hour and a half, 7.30 to 9 o'clock on Saturday, the 2nd of February, up at the Merland Rise Church. And, um, and if you wanted to join them, then I'd encourage you to, to, to go and do that. They, they, they're calling it the waking of the giant. Just a real prophetic sense that there's this, this, this giant of God's purposes and kingdom in this nation that needs waking up, that needs stirring. And I don't know, but I don't know about you, I feel stirred afresh about pressing into God and asking him to pour out his spirit on this nation. So... Um, just to recap then on the points that I've made, let's be a church that who is hungry and thirsty for more of Jesus, a church where God's love is evident, a church where people demonstrate one another, where we're one another to each other, encouraging, blessing, and uh, loving one another, we're a church where everyone is growing in their understanding of their identity in Christ and a church where we are all reliant on the Word of God and the Holy Spirit to direct and lead us. Amen? Amen. Fantastic. Do you want to stand and let me pray for us all? And then I'll hand back over to Michaela and the band. Father, I thank you for your church. Jesus, I thank you that you have chosen to outwork your purposes through each and every one of us. And Father, I thank you that you don't call us to be perfect, that you call us as we are, as weak and broken vessels in your hands. And I just pray now, Lord, come Holy Spirit, come refresh us, guide us, stir us, lead us, Lord, this coming week into the things that you've called us to be and the things that you've called us to do. 
I pray your blessing over everybody here this morning, that they would go from here knowing your encouragement, your blessing, and your strength as they look to you, Jesus. Amen.